Hi, and welcome to yet another episode of The Reenactor's Corner. We were supposed to talk about the structure of the Wehrmacht this episode, but we had a fantastic opportunity to interview Nina, who is a reenactor. In this episode, we will talk to her about her experiences as a reenactor, but also as a female in a very male-dominated hobby. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Reenactors Corner. This is Chris here again with Lassa. How are you doing today, Lassa? I'm doing fantastic, as always. What about you? I'm doing all right. I had a long day at work today, which is okay. Uh, the, the weather's too hot for this time of year. Uh, looking forward to cooler weather in the autumn weeks ahead. We're having cold weather now, actually, and I, I love it. Yeah, I'm sure that your weather in Norway is superior to the weather that I am experiencing today. It is very humid <laughs> here at my mansion, and, uh, you know... As your mansion? Yeah, I live in a big mansion. I live in a big mansion, and I'm sitting right now in a studio that I had built in the mansion, just so everyone can picture what that must look like. I, I think everyone wishes they were you, Chris. <laughs> so, I am pleased to say that we have a special guest here today. We are going to talk to Nina about her reenactment projects. How are you doing today, Nina? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Well, we covered that, but we all know we're doing good. <laughs> so why don't you just tell us, kind of introduce yourself and talk about how you got interested in World War II history and reenacting. Sure. Um, so as Chris said, I'm Nina. Um, I've been reenacting since 2018. My main impression is Soviet. Um, but I've always sort of been interested in history, um, and especially military history. Um, I'm currently doing a master's in that topic. Um, and it's always been a sort of um, present interest in my life. Um, my parents are from Europe, uh, very recent immigrants, and I grew up hearing stories about World War II, um, and especially um, the female experience in World War II, since my grandmother was the one telling me all these stories. So I think from, from there, I got this sort of kernel of interest that grew into both this hobby and academic point of interest. Yeah, you mentioned an academic point of interest. You're going to school for real history stuff? Yeah, um, I'm, uh, I'm actually working on my master's thesis right now, which is um, about um, the prisoners of the Kingdom of Yugoslavia in German stalags and off-lags, which isn't exactly reenacting related, but it's still, you know, the military history side of things that I've sort of been working on for the past couple years. Yeah, if that was the setting for a reenactment, I would go. That, would, that sounds fun to me. Yeah. Um, so, I guess, um, how was it that you came to kind of focus on reenacting Soviet as a primary thing? What, what was it about the Soviet impression that appealed to you the most? So, I think it was really sort of an accident. Um, it was, I became interested in World War II uh, reenacting, and uh, that was like the most logical thing for me uh, to do to participate in a sort of meaningful way at reenactments. Um, you know, and in addition to uh, just it being, you know, really one of the largest female segments of the hobby, um, 
I've also, as a segment of my interest in military history, I've been, I was always interested in the history of communism, the history of Eastern Europe, um, and I also took, uh, I minored in Russian um, in my undergrad. So I think it was just really a confluence of all those things that drew me into Soviet. That's cool. So you've got some like language ability that is uh, rel- like relates to your impression, right? Yeah. What what languages do you speak? Um, so I speak um, Serbi- the Serbian, Serbo-Croatian, and I also speak Russian. So um, I took a semester of German, um, and I plan to get back into it. But um, really, Serbian and Russian are the ones that I know, other than English. That's really cool. You did you learn Russian in school, or was it something that you learned growing up from your family? Um, I learned it in school. Um, again, it was also one of those things that was kind of an accident of of circumstance. Um, because I remember I wanted to take ancient Greek initially when I went to college, and my mom was like, Russian's so close to Serbian, just take and get the easy A. And then from there, um, it, I, you know, I learned it, I got the opportunity to go to Russia and be immersed in language study there, so, uh, yeah. That's really cool. Now, you also, you are here today in New England, but you're not from here, right? You started reenacting in a different region of the country? Yes, in the Midwest. Um so that's kind of interesting. How, you know, t- for so far, how would you compare, like, the Midwest-USA reenactment scene to the New England scene? Is it, like, mostly the same? Um, you know, I would say that I really prefer this scene. I think that this scene is a lot more um, focused on research in a way that isn't, um, you know, sort of exclusionary, if that makes sense. I've had m- much more... I much better experience here um, sharing my research, get, um, you know, researching with others. Uh, while I feel like the Midwest is very, you know, uh, people are very set in their sort of units and their ways, while here I think it's a, a little more fluid, which I like. That's fu- that's actually surprising. I might have thought you might have said something different. I feel like, you know, I, I've never really, like, attended reenactments in the Midwestern part of the USA. I really only know about it from... I don't know, I guess like Stalingrad, Ohio is kind of Midwest, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I only know about it from the internet, and it, it's funny because it seems like it would maybe be more fluid in the Midwest to me. I guess that just kind of speaks to how different, like, real-life experience in reenacting can be versus what it looks like it would be from, like, Facebook groups. Oh, definitely. Um, but that's cool. Um, so, you know, what what do you think, like, obviously you have some real advantages to... Um, for research because of your language ability, right? It really gives you the opportunity to delve into primary source stuff and get information. Like, like from my perspective, I found information about Red Army stuff and Soviet World War II stuff to be really hard to get for me. There's a lot on the internet, but I can't read or understand it because it's in a different language. But you um, having that ability, that really, I think, opens up a lot of doors for you. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's also points where I have to, you know, sort of stop and go to Google Translate because obviously military ranks and stuff like that aren't something that they teach you in Russian language study. But um, I'm definitely lucky, you know, to have had the training that I have gone through. And I mean, I'm sure you feel the same way about knowing German, you know, because there is a lot of stuff that I've done research into, into German that I've sort of been lost in. Uh, since I don't know the language, um, especially when you have to really get down and dirty with documents that are handwritten that you can't, you know, plug into the, uh, like, a 
online translator service. But um, yeah, I think that it is an advantage, but I think that knowing these skills, I think it's important for me to sort of use, put them to use for other people to be able to learn from them. I think that um, knowing these things is an asset in the fact that I get to help people rather than me just knowing the language and being like, oh wow, I know Russian, like, I know more than you guys. I think that I, I personally view it as a tool to sort of help advance um, what other people know about the impression. That's awesome. I, I try to do the same thing, too, with my translation stuff that I put online. I feel like, you know, it, when you get information that is useful to other reenactors, there's kind of an ethical mandate there to share that information. Oh, I agree. Um, so you've got a blog, right? Um, yeah. So Nina's blog is uh, frontovic4145 dot wordpress dot com. Right? Mm-hmm, that's correct. Um, so why don't you just talk a little bit about like how you came up with the idea to have a blog that was kind of targeted towards reenactors and what your goals are or like what that project is about. Um, so I was actually inspired by you. Um, I I don't know. I've read your blog before just to sort of you know, material culture and stuff has always interested me. So I've read some of your blog posts and I was like, well, there's like a real lack of this for Soviet stuff. And, um, that's, that was really where the seed of the idea began. Um, I also like to collect documents. That's my favorite thing to collect. I think you can really get a much more intimate sense of what, the Soviets were like, or what any army was like, really, when you get to look at their photos, their documents, their letters. So I was like, hey, I'm sitting on this trove of, like, stuff that I've been collecting for, like, a year now. Um, Why not put that online? Um, And so the first post on the blog is an ID book that I have. It's one of the more complete ones. Um, And it just sort of... um, you know, it was just a very standard Red Army man on the older side. I believe he was a machine gunner. But, like, by looking at his ID, you can sort of get a sense of what equipment he was issued, what his movements were uh, during the war, where he was from. Um, you know, you get you get an, a sense of the man. And I think that's really interesting to communicate and for people to sort of learn about is that, you know, these are real men and women with all these, with this backstory, really. Um, So that was, like, the first post that I made. Um, But then I decided also to expand it a little further. I think material culture as reenactors is really important to understand, uh, which is, you know, why I wrote about food in the Red Army. Uh, You know, you really, to accurately portray an impression, you really do need to know material culture outside of uniforms. Um, You know, like, I think that it's important when you go out at an event that you have the correct food and that you you know, set your plosh up in the correct way and so on and so forth for it to be really immersive and authentic. And I think that's something that I can, you know, that I can help people along with by sort of doing research into it, making a small, like, readable article, and then people can take away what they want from it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, You know, I, I do try to do that same sort of thing. I, I also collect original identity documents. You can learn so much from these things. There are aspects of my impression that come directly from identity documents that I, you know, found and bought and own and translated. Um, so it's it's really cool because I have 
a very small amount of Soviet wartime paperwork, but it's just, you know, the just the Cyrillic alone is like, or Cyrillic cursive, right, especially, is so, I'll never be able to read it. You know, I can't read Cyrillic block letters at this point. That's like a future goal for me to be able to do that. But like the cursive, I realize I'm never going to be able to do that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, um, the cursive is definitely a hurdle, but, um, you know, it's just one of those things that, thankfully, I had uh, ethnically Russian professors who would grade in Russian cursive, so I had to learn <laughs> to improve. Um, but yeah, it's. I think. I think honestly, documents are sort of neglected in what is collected. Like you know, you get this flashy like tunic or you know, I don't know, like cap of some kind but you know and those things are cool and I like those things and I think they're interesting but what's always captivated me is how how human these documents are you know they're very it's very like earthy in a way you 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 sort of get a image of what this person must have been like um who they were how how they went through the war what they saw even yeah, there's so much detail in those. Like even just looking at somebody's handwriting, right? Like oh, yeah. Even just looking at somebody's signature, you can kind of, you know, one person's signature is more flamboyish and another person's signature is more crude or childish, you know, and it's like you kind of get a sense of where someone is on their path through their life just from looking even at two words that they've written in their own handwriting. Um, no, yeah. yeah. Um, I definitely agree. I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just it's. I think it's a more intimate sort of of thing you can collect for sure. Uh, something that's much more, you know, just it's just intimate in a in a way. Plus, it's all unique. You know, every single piece is different. You know, you can't. It's not like collecting coins or something where you can just assign a numeric grade to the condition of a coin. It's like every single paperwork item is special in its own way or 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 is ordinary in its own way, right? But there mm-hmm. it's all in its own way. No, yeah. And I mean like you know, the photos that I have are like just so you know, full of life in a way. You can sort of look at a person's face and you know, think like just you know sort of be amazed um i got um i recently received a photo and it was um a man in 1941 a soviet red army higher ranking officer and his name was on the back which is standard but also someone under his name wrote pogib which means he died he died in the war um and that was just you know someone someone cared for this man, someone carried that photo around, and when he passed away in the war, you know, it's just, it's very, I don't know, it was, it's touching in a way. A lot of paperwork can be, and a lot of, like, photography can be. Totally. Um, So you mentioned, like, you know, your family background, that you grew up hearing stories about World War II from the perspective of people who... um, like we're actually there meaning at the place where the war was taking place which is different from like myself and probably most Americans where my family memories of World War II were from soldiers who went off and fought in other places Um, so like Lhasa you like everybody that you know must have like family history about World War II right because it happened where you live yeah everyone has some sort of history 
What about you? You never really talked about your own family history in World War II. Was it? <laughs> are you embarrassed? No. Um, Something is, high? It's, it's kind of complicated uh, because it uh, it involves a story of a secret army. But, oh, wow. but um, in short terms, um, my grandfather on my father's side, uh, he was working for an entrepreneur in uh, Trondheim in Norway, and he uh, participated in building the uh, uh, the uh, Dora U-boat bunkers, which was the biggest U-boat bunkers for the North Sea. Uh, it housed, uh, I can't remember which flotilla of U-boats, but it housed an entire flotilla. Uh, but uh, he got paid for it. He wasn't a slave or anything um, because Germany was good to uh, use local entrepreneurs and and uh, manpower. But uh, he, um, he did escape eventually to neutral Sweden where he uh, signed up to fight for... Uh, for Norway's freedom, um, and he joined uh, what is known as the uh, police force, uh, which is basically a cover name for a uh, for an army consisting of Norwegian soldiers commanded by Swedish officers in neutral Sweden, and these were trained by Swedish military as well as. Uh, XO and SOE agents from England and USA. And he eventually went uh, into northern Norway with the Soviet invasion of northern Norway in uh, in 1945. Wow, that's cool. What about you, Nina? Like, uh, your family, I guess, where, where were they located uh, during World War II? Um, so my family um, is from the former Yugoslavia. My dad um, is Bosnian Serb, and my mother's from Montenegro. Um, and it was my mother's mother who told me most of the stories. Uh, she was born in 1936, um, so she was a child during the war, but she had a sister who was 10 years older than her. So um, they lived in northern Montenegro, which was passing hands between all factions um, throughout the war, um, and they first had Italian occupation, and my grandmother always tells me that the Italians were, you know, her most vivid memory is that they would trade um, Milanese, like, silk underwear for eggs. They would always pay for um, eggs with silk underwear, and that was, like, the first time they had seen underwear in that village. Wow. Uh, So, um, and then the Germans um, replaced the Italians in 43, um, and the Germans were scarier. They, you know, my grandmother remembers they had to hide in the woods, and her brother who was 14 at the time, was uh, walking home. And he was waylaid by some German soldiers, and they thought he was a partisan, but he knew German. So he was like, no, 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 I'm, you know, I'm just a student. Um, But, you know, he was a 14-year-old, and there were partisans that were that age. Uh, The other story that was always told to me was that when the Italians left in 43, um, they left behind full storehouses of stuff, because it was such a... um, you know, such a quick evacuation. And uh, the entire town descended on the on the former barracks, and they sent my grandpa out to get food, because, you know, it's 1943, wartime food is scarce. Um, and my grandpa takes a sack of what he thinks are potatoes, 
um, and he brings them home, and they open the bag, and it's full of Italian grenades. Um, so they had to go. Uh, they they buried the grenades somewhere, so not so as to not be caught with them. And my grandpa got his butt beat. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, there are so many different nuances in how they were treated because my father's family um, was in Bosnia. And I think there were actually security troops that were in his village. And he remembers um, stories of how kids would uh, steal their horses. But um, the, the Germans were like old, like in their 40s and 50s. And they would just like laugh and give them candy and be like, no, no, don't steal our horses. So it's just interesting. It's a quite a wide ver- variety of experiences um, that they experienced. That's cool. Um, now, I know in addition to doing like Soviet World War II, you have other historical reenactment type impressions as well, right? Yeah. So I've been working on a Luftwaffe Helfrin uh, impression for a bit now. Uh, it's taking a little bit because it's all stuff that has to be, you know, you have to contact someone in Europe to make it for you. Um, a night, a very nice lady in Pittsburgh uh, made the blazer and skirt for me. Um, so, but I, you know, you need more than that. You need like the hat and all of that stuff, which I'm getting from from Eastern Europe. But um, Luftwaffe Helfrin is definitely something that I want to move forward and flesh out more. I think Helfrin impressions um, are very interesting, and I think they really do deserve a a little bit more attention. I think something like every one in 20 uh, members of the entire, like, German armed forces was a woman in an auxiliary role. I mean, it was huge. Um, And there's just a lot of variety and a lot of interesting history there that I think should be talked about and should be portrayed at living history events. That's cool. I really never, I didn't know that the, uh, the female component of the German armed forces was so big. Yeah, there's, uh, some German language scholarship on it. Um, I think there's a very, like, uh, seminal work on SS Helfrenen, but there is also, um, an, an English language book that, um, uh, I think it's called Female Administrators of the Reich. Um, and it's really, you know, eye-opening and really shows how um, how vast this female, like, administration organ was in the entire German armed forces, you know? Uh, women were pretty, pretty, you know, heavily recruited for this type of work. Um, you know, from the DRK to just, like, the health friend of each of the branches. Wow, that's cool. Um, and I know you also, you have like a partisan impression, right? Uh, yeah, I do uh, You Go Partisan, um, which um, I do it with Sean uh, Godfrey. Um, he's like the head dude for it. Um, and we we do partisan events mostly at displays. You know, there really isn't much of a place for tacticals, uh, for partisans at tacticals, unfortunately. Um, but, uh, you know, it's also just an interesting piece of that Balkan history. You know, you get, um, you really get to learn a lot about the war in the Balkans through portraying this impression. And also, you know, uh, the Yugo partisans were the partisans with the highest proportion of women, um, in all partisan movements in Europe, which I also think is interesting. That's cool. Um, I did want to ask, like, obviously, you know, I think, it won't be a surprise to our listeners to hear that, like, World War II reenacting has been, like, kind of a male-dominated hobby. Yeah. 
And, you know, what is it like being a female participant in a hobby where most of the participants are not females? Um, I think that female reenacting is still sort of in its embryonic stage. I mean, there are a lot of great female reenactors who have done great stuff. Uh, but I think that, you know, interest in a lot of women remains low, uh, obviously because, you know, a lot of it, women see it as a male thing, military history is seen as a male sphere. But I think that um, I've been fortunate enough to make friends with a lot of other female reenactors who, you know, don't necessarily do the same impressions I do, but I've been pleasantly surprised to find that there are women who will be always helpful, will always have your ideas, you know, will bounce ideas off of you and you off of them. Um, so I'm grateful for that. Um, but I do think that, you know, there is room to grow and room to expand. Um, room to sort of learn more about women's roles in World War II because, you know, as I mentioned before, I was sort of, it was only natural for me as a woman to get into Soviet reenacting. Um, and then, you know, I was handed a Mosin and was like, all right, you're, so you're, you know, doing Soviet now. But as I did more research on the roles of women in the Soviet army, in the Red Army, I figured that there, I found out there were a thousand different impressions that I could do that fit me better than just rifle woman, which was relatively rare. Like, you know, I could do medic or I could do signal woman or I could invest in a machine gun and work on a machine gun crew. So like I, that's, that's the one thing that I do th kind of want to see is sort of a growth in the variety of what women portray. Uh, instead of, you know, just being shunted into, okay, so you're going to do Soviet, or you're going to do DRK, or, you know, all those, like, very, um, you know, base-level, entry-level impressions. Um, I think there is a lot more room for women to put their roots into the hobby, to sort of explore the options that are given to them more. Because there is a lot. There is a lot you can do in World War II that I don't think a lot of people know about. Lasa, I know you can't really speak right directly to, like, the experiences of women exactly, but, uh, I mean, what's your take for, like, Europe where you reenact? Do you think that World War II reenacting is, like, becoming more inclusive for women, or has it always been inclusive for women, or what do you think? Well, I think the UK scene has the uh, biggest portion of women in Europe, um, and I don't really think there's too much of them. I actually uh, uh, kind of envy the American scene for having uh, dedicated uh, female um, uh, uh, units, so to say. I noticed there are a few other European um, like uh, lady units, uh, <laughs> units for women. They, there's some, uh, there's uh, somewhere in East Europe, I think, there's like a, or is it Germany? that do like a flak gunner's impression too, which is always cool to see on photos. But I think the U.S. has more of it. You know, there have always, all the time, I've been reenacting for almost 20 years, and all of the time that I've been a reenactor, I've known women who were doing various aspects of World War II. Uh, I do think in more recent years it's become more common to see, which I think is a good thing. And I think part of the reason for that is because... You know, I, I think when World War II reenacting started in America and how it kind of was for a while, it was like all combat-oriented stuff. And then I think more recently, I've noticed there have been a lot more like 
kind of immersion type events that can include a rear area scenario where female military or female civilian personnel would be like more appropriate, um, which is like a trend that I totally love and, and I hope that it continues. I feel that like the uh, uh, classic case of women in the hobby is, uh, you know, the, the question we find on, uh, on Facebook all the time, like, uh, hey, my girlfriend want to join, uh, join uh, the hobby. Where can I get like the cheapest DRK kit? Yeah, totally. What's the cheapest outfit that I can buy so that my girlfriend can come to the reenactment, right? Yeah. But like Nina, that, you know, you, I guess, probably would have become a reenactor. You became a reenactor independent of all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, I came into the hobby um, because there was um, a friend in my Russian class did it. And I was... Um, I was like, okay, that sounds cool. I mean, a little dorky, but I want to give it a try. Um, and it sort of snowballed from there. Um, but, you know, I do know some women who have got, gotten in through their boyfriends and, you know, have become good reenactors and excellent reenactors, really, in their own right. Um, but it is sort of unfortunate that a lot of women are sort of shunted in as eye candy. I've also noticed that, too, like... I've seen it in, like, at public displays, like, you know, DRK girls washing German reenactor guys' hair. And that's just kind of, gr- I don't know, I don't think that's, I don't think that's very cool. I think that's, I don't want to, you know, be like, oh, well, they're objectified, or this is anti-feminist. Which is, I'm not saying that at all. I just think that, um, I just think it's corny. If you're a dude and you have to drag your girlfriend in to reenact, you're kind of corny. I'm sorry. I agree a lot. I think some people would probably say there is like a pressure for women to conform to these kind of roles, right? And that, you know, maybe people feel like if they kind of play along with this, it'll be like more favorable for them. They'll get like invites to more events or whatever. I mean, uh, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, I hope that as we move forward, you know, we can find more realistic roles, you know, that women can find for themselves more realistic roles, that events, event hosts and organizers can create more realistic roles and to be more inclusive for female reenactors who want to participate. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, and like you said, uh, the sort of boom of, like, office impressions and rear line impressions and, like, clerical impressions, I think, really, really does help along women in the hobby. There are new roles that they can fill, that they can research about and have fun in. Um, you know, like, the tact- t- tacticals are always fun, you know. I, I'm not one to knock a tactical, but, you know, you can also get a sense of enjoyment and authenticity from, from doing something that isn't necessarily combat-related. Did you find World War II reenacting to be, like, welcoming when you got started, or how did you feel about it when you were new to it? Um, so I, I, there, I have some very close and very dear friends from when I started reenacting. Um, but you know, I think everyone, when they start reenacting, goes through some of those awkward moments where, um, you know, sometimes a unit is not very friendly towards you or, you know, has their own thing and you don't fit into that own thing. And I think, that's something that's unfortunately a reality for both male and female reenactors. You sort of have to go through that learning curve. 
of finding people that you fit with, a unit that you fit with, uh, not just in terms of authenticity, but who you can relate with and, and be friends with, you know. The unit that I'm in right now, I wouldn't say that there's a person that I dislike. In fact, I'm friends with all of them, or uh, at least on, you know, friendly terms. And I think, I think really that's just what it is. You have to sort of find your own place. And it can be awkward and uncomfortable a bit. I certainly felt awkward and uncomfortable at some times during when I, at my first time starting reenacting, but I don't think that's necessarily a gender thing. I think that that's just, everyone has to start somewhere. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think there's some awesome advice there for like men and women alike getting started in reenacting. It is a really steep learning curve, like in every way when you start, you know, not only what kind of hat am I supposed to have, but like, okay, who is going to be an ally and who is going to like maybe automatically not like me for one reason or another. Mm -hmm. So another thing, uh, Nina, that I wanted to ask you about was like, you know, look in your role as like an academic, right, or a student, um, there is kind of like some tension, I feel like, between academia and reenacting, right, between real history and like amateur historians and, uh, you know, what's it like kind of navigating that as someone who's got a foot on both sides of the aisle, so to speak? You know, it can definitely be sort of awkward. Um, you know, you're, you're portraying people who aren't necessarily looked in the best way to put it lightly by, you know, the lens of history. Um, and you know, and on one hand being in academia has really helped me gain a deeper understanding I would feel of the war. I mean, it's what I've devoted my life to for the past three and three or four years. Um, but it's also, there is a tension. There is definitely sort of a feeling of, you know, if this photo of me, even in a Soviet uniform is sent to like, um, a future employer that wouldn't look great for me. Um, because, you know, there is that sort of sense that, um, if you do this, you're glorifying what happened in the past. I personally don't think so. I, I'm confident in my own personal and political views to know that, you know, I'm not a Stalinist and I'm not a Nazi. Um, but I can see why people are uncomfortable. It's very unfortunate that people are made uncomfortable by it, but it's definitely something that I have to walk a thin line between. Just be smart about, you know, my presence online, um, you know, the way I conduct myself at an event. Uh, but I feel, again, everyone should be smart about how they conduct themselves at events and how they conduct themselves professionally. I think it's a bad look if you, you know, go all in on Stalin's great or Hitler's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, it, there is some tension. I would say so. Um, it, but it's it's something that you sort of have to learn how to how to how to balance and how to walk. Is there anything that you could say that you maybe have learned from going to school for this stuff that you could give as advice for reenactors about how to approach research or how to approach 
history or historical interpretation? Sure. Um, so I would say stay clear of pop history. I think pop history is the number one pitfall that you can get into as a reenactor. Those pithy things, like there was a book about, like, it's blitzed drugs I in the third. I can't stand that book. People bring that book up all the time. <laughs> well, yeah, right, because it's shitty history. What it's book? like... It's just like it, uh, Lassa, do you know do you know about this book Blitzed? It's about uh, like German soldiers and drugs and drugs oh, during no. the Third Reich. Yeah. And it's like it's essentially like well, you know, they're all on drugs and that's why they did what they did. Uh, so the one number, number one thing I would say is like stop stay away from like these pithy books that are titled in some eye-catching manner because you know, they you it's history made to read like a novel. It's history made to catch your eye and be digestible. And that's not really real history, usually. It's it's turned to make it more exciting than it really was. Um, and I, I do really like, um, you know, the academic books really do give you a better view. I mean, they're definitely tougher to read and longer and maybe a slog. But, you know, I learned more from, you know, the female administrators of the Third Reich than I did from, you know, the book that you can pick up at your local Barnes & Noble. And, like, and again, academic books can be very expensive, but um, most libraries offer interlibrary loan, and they usually partner with academic libraries. So if you want to read one of these books that's maybe a bit heavier on the academic side, you can just go to your local library, talk to your librarian, be like hey, I'm interested in X book, and I see that this college near us offers it. Uh, can you um, can you get ILL for me, or an interlibrary loan? Um, sorry, I'm like giving all this advice. Um, and oh, it's it's jumbled. But in, you can also use WorldCat to find these books. So WorldCat.org, you can search, you can type in a subject. For example, I don't know, Helfrenen. And then it gives you a list of books on that topic, and then every library that carries it near you within uh, like a thousand mile radius so uh so that's my first point uh shirk pop history you can find academic history with just a little bit of elbow grease online um and secondly really don't ignore the primary sources uh if you can find a primary source uh you you should study it um you can find them on the internet i mean even if they're in a different language what you can do, for example, if you find like a German primary source, you highlight the the web link and then you put it into Google Translate and it'll automatically translate the entire website for you. You just click on it. Uh, and primary sources are important because you sort of get um, a view of how stuff was quote, on the ground. Um, you sort of, you can sort of extrapolate what a primary source means or what its usefulness is just based on the historical context. Like, I don't know, you can read a speech by Stalin in 1942 and you can sort of get an idea of what it was like in the Soviet Union at that time or what the war situation was like or what the war situation was looked like in Russia. So, you know, y you have you have these options to really do research with the help of the great internet. Also, final tip. This is un kind of unethical, but if you don't want to go through, like, interlibrary loan and all of that, um, Library Genesis is your friend. It's um, some Russian website where you can download PDFs for absolutely free, <laughs> and, you know, you can just read them. 
and that's how I usually get most of my textbooks, but it is what it is. That sounds great. Yeah. Cool. Thanks for those tips. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no problem. Um, no, I've used like academic books for to inform various impressions that I've had. I've found them to be so helpful, even if they were sometimes like super dense um, and difficult to get through. Right. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, like lots of information in there. I see people on Facebook asking questions all the time that have complicated answers and sometimes the best answer really is like here's the book that you need to read about this and it might not be like a thrilling page turner about world war ii combat action right but it's got the you know the the structural foundational building blocks that you need for your impression like i think about this a lot in relation to the Volkssturm, which was the late war, like civilian militia that the germans put together in 1944 um there's like a lot of ways to approach this, a lot of ways to approach this impression. And I think you really almost need to have a kind of understanding of how this organization was formed and how the different parts of this organization work together and how the different aspects of this, how the different aspects of these people, you know, were, were kind of equipped and uniformed over time. And it's just, it's not something that you are going to find really in a YouTube video. It's not something you're really going to find in a couple of paragraphs that somebody is going to take the time to type out on a Facebook group about reenacting. Like you have to actually put in the effort and get the answers yourself. Oh, of course. Definitely. Um, so what is it like you've been reenacting for a couple of years. Why do you still do it? What is it that you like about it? Honestly, uh, this is really nerdy, but I, I really love just getting I think getting a kit is sort of answering a research question so you I want to do a kit I want to do it well how do I put it together um accurately I you know you have to put in effort you have to put in it's like a puzzle almost uh so that's like one aspect that really I really like about the hobby you know you sort of the it's it's sort of like you know building a, a diorama like, but, you know, with clothes and with a uniform. Um, and the other one is, like, I've made some really enduring friendships in the hobby. I I do like, you know, going somewhere for a weekend, pretending I'm it's 1943, and just sort of escaping in in a fun way, you know? It's, it's a, you know, I don't think, I don't think pe people should shy away from escapism. I think it's perfectly natural um, when done in a fun and safe manner. And, you know, it's fun to indulge your middle school self playing soldier in the woods. And I accept that and I want to do it accurately. <laughs> That's cool. It can be hard sometimes to like get over yourself and like just admit that a lot of this kind of is you know, like you say, there is an escapist aspect of it. There is, like, a dork aspect of it, you know, or just, like, history nerd or make-believe stuff, you know. Lasa, I know we've talked about this before. What, escaping reality? No, like, the aspect of reenactment that maybe, like, you're not going to be able to get around the fact that there is, like, a dork aspect of this stuff. You know, like what we talked about before with mm -hmm. first person, you know, where you're pretending that you're a person from the past and, like... Oh, that's so dorky. Yeah, but you know you like doing it. It's fun. Like, that's the problem. My entire unit consists of, like, nerds. Well, like, 
Nina's kind of a nerd. You know, I think everybody in reenactment kind of like there's a certain type of person that is attracted to this kind of thing. I mean, it's like who's a history buff, right? You have to you almost have to be a history buff in order to do this. And it's just like there is a certain kind of personality type, I think, that just where like reading about the past or imagining who you would be if you lived in a different time, right? I mean, that's kind of who makes up the people that go to reenactments. Yeah, certainly. But everyone listening to this are nerds. Yeah, like you should, people should just I would encourage our audience to just embrace it and just go go with being a nerd. <laughs> yeah. Totally. It you know, everyone I think I think we live in a culture that, you know, if you there are some like sanctioned forms of nerdism, you know, like fucking Marvel movies. But, you know, like you it's fun to like sort of embrace the weird about yourself and what you like to do you know like you're an adult now who cares do what you want you're not if you're not hurting anybody have fun the way you want to and we all like you know pretending we live in the 40s and that's fine and it's cool and i'm glad that i do it and that i heard of this hobby that's cool so what do you think for yourself like going forward i know this year has not been a good one for reenacting, right? Yeah. Um, well, I my unit has been working on um, getting some pre-war Soviet stuff together. We actually um, are planning on, you know, having a couple immersions this uh, fall and winter, some private events where we can get a cabin or, um, you know, camp out for a couple couple days. Um, and you know, we're we're looking forward to next season we definitely have we definitely have plans we've been talking about getting some displays or some impressions done for some displays and um the big tacticals here in the northeast once everything eases up in terms of coronavirus but we do have it's all behind the scenes unfortunately due to the health situation but we do have you know from public displays to immersions to tacticals we all have stuff in 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 plan that's cool we're really, I think, I feel really lucky to have the community that we have here in this region where there's enough people who want to do Eastern Front reenacting that we have the ability to make events happen, make our own events happen, or support, you know, the people that want to host events that we could go to. Um, but even if even if I didn't live in an area that had a an active scene for Eastern Front reenacting, I, like, would still find some way to do it. You know, even if I was doing it by myself, I would would find some way. Um, Or even if it was just, like, photo shoots or whatever, you know? Yeah. Now, if we we backtrack a little bit, we talked about uh, uh, guys bringing their girlfriends in and how cringy that can be, but do you think, or, like, have you experienced, or do you think, like, uh, unwanted attention from... Uh, the male-dominated part of the hobby is a problem. Uh, I think it definitely can be a problem, especially when someone posts, uh, a woman posts an impression and men are like, oh, wooga, a woman in my reenacting. Um, and unfortunately, you know, I don't want to, like, toot my own horn because it's happened to every woman that I've talked to, but um, it, it has happened, um, and there have been men who have been a little creepy and a little... Um, invasive Um, you know I don't want to put them on blast but you know sometimes you just have to be like hey man like I am in a relationship um, and I don't want like 
I'm, you know, you have to be sort of like, hey man. And the fact that I do reenact with my partner is very, I think, helpful in that regard because they, people see that I am with someone um, and that most normal men aren't going to be like, hey little mama, let me whisper in your ear or something like that. So um, it, it is an unfortunate problem. I think most men that reenact are self-aware enough not to do that. Um, you know, most most of the men I have met are perfectly lovely. Many are my friends. Uh, but there is that contingent that does make reenacting uncomfortable sometimes, unfortunately. I'm sorry to hear. Um, I've been a uh, moderator and admin on a few Facebook groups, and it was always weird when uh, a female posted something. You would always, like, get these weird people that just had to like comment for no reason for absolutely nothing at all really but luckily uh, those men are few and far between thankfully as i said most reenactor men perfectly lovely perfectly normal types who understand that maybe like you know saying wow how beautiful queen on a show your impressions page is not the way to get a girlfriend yeah, um, absolutely not. Uh, another question I had was uh, uh, one that I've been thinking a lot about because I have friends who do medieval and Viking reenactment and there it is not uncommon to have uh, the uh, females uh, reenacting men, so to say, regular soldiers. Is that something that also happens in World War II reenactment? I think I've only seen it a handful of times. I really don't think that it's... Because I also know some people who are in the medieval and Viking community, even though it's not something that I reenact, uh, just by the virtue of meeting them through public events. Um, but, you know, I don't think I've really seen it, except for maybe a handful of times, and those times have... I haven't seen it in recently. I think... Um, I mean, if if your unit wants to do that, that's fine. Um you know, I've uh, I've come to the realization that, you know, every unit has different standards of authenticity and different ways they enjoy the hobby. And if someone wants to do that in another unit, that's, you know, it's their turf. Uh, but personally, you know, I, I wouldn't do it. I just wouldn't feel zony. I wouldn't feel immersed um, to do, like, taking on a quote-unquote male role in that sense. Hey, did you hear the train that came by twice? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so I feel like I could sit here for like an unlimited amount of time and have no train come, but then when I go to record a podcast, like it's like nonstop train traffic in my backyard. Uh, I think we should have a drinking game where for the audience, they have to take a drink when they hear the train horn at my house. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it's uh, all the all the weird sounds and disturbing sounds that only come when you when you're trying to record audio that's <laughs> yes. that's like the paradox um it's uh it's funny just today i work on a feature film and it was all quiet but just as we were going to shoot the first shot uh a plane came by a helicopter came by and construction work started working i've done some like TV stuff where it's just been like one thing after another like that so I don't know this fortunately uh, I think that the the train whistle is kind of zony and adds certain a certain amount of ambiance you know yeah I love the I love the train horn 
Do you have any tips for females looking to get into the hobby? Um, so I think that, first of all, um, really, I got in because I knew a person. And I think a lot of people are going to get in that way because you don't really know of reenacting if you're just going a, a, around, like along with your regular life. Uh, but if you do somehow, if a woman does somehow get um, an independent interest, um, or anyone really, um, I think that it's best to find a unit that um, is established, uh, which you can find on Facebook. You can really, you can look up, I don't know, Soviet unit, and then you'll get a list of unit pages, and they usually have options to message them or get in touch with them in some way. And in my experience, most unit leaders will at least talk to you. And if they think that you're going to be a good fit with their unit or another unit, they will let you know and they will be courteous about it. I don't think I've run into anyone who's been an overt dick who's, you know, a unit leader. So I think, you know, if you're getting in that way, you know, reach out to someone who's in a position of quote-unquote authority. Um, otherwise, I think my tip is to you know, it, it's schmaltzy, but make friends, you know, you're, you can really make a lot of good enduring connections through reenacting a lot of good female friendships too. So I think being open to making friends, being open to, um, you know, that sort of thing, definitely a, a, something you should be, you know, coming into the hobby with. Um, and then also uh, expect to sort of stumble. You know, not any, not everyone is uh, born knowing the exact type of holster you need for a Soviet Starshina impression, you know? So uh, ask a lot of questions. If you do make a mistake, it's, it's part of the learning process. And don't take it personally. Just sort of, you know, take, take it in with an open mind is those are my tips, which are very broad tips, but, you know, just be willing to put yourself out there, make friends, and, you know, work on yourself and your impression. Those are great tips for guys, too. Yeah, actually, yeah. They're good tips in general. All right, so, um, Lassa, I hope you have a nice evening and can get some rest. Uh, Nina, thanks again for coming on and answering all our questions. Thank you guys again. Oh, um, if so we mentioned your blog. Is there anything else that you want to mention for, like, if people want to, I don't know, is there any, like, reenacting project that you want to throw out there? Um, no, I mean, everything that I'm going to be doing, so now I'm going to have a little bit more time, uh, which is paradoxical because I was busy over the summer, but not much now. Um, so I'm just going to, you know, keep getting some documents on the site, um, I do have a Instagram where I post photos of uh, Russian uh, World War II soldiers, which might be of interest if people want to follow, um, which is uh, just RKKA portraits all together on Instagram. Uh, and, you know, you can just, I'm sharing my photo collection that way over Instagram. And that's, that's pretty much it. <laughs> that's the only other project. All right. Uh, thanks again, Nina. And Lassa, it was nice talking to you. And to everybody out there, I will see you in the field. I'll see you in the field, guys. And thank you, Nina. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. For the next episode that will be on the structure of the Wehrmacht, we will release that on the 22nd of October. Thanks again to Mike, a.k.a. Retroman, for editing this podcast.